Yeah, good, good, good. Good to be here with you all this morning. Um, yeah, last week uh, I was uh, we're doing the evangelism training, and afterwards we walked out, and Andrew Newell was like, uh, man, like, why are we doing baptisms next week? And I was like, because they're awesome. <laughs> like, what do you mean? He was like, why are you doing them when most of the people that want to be baptized are going to be out of town? I was like, why are they going to be out of town randomly? He was like, Memorial Day. So I forgot the day that you're supposed to remember, all right? And so shame on me, okay? That will never happen again. So apologies there. Uh, but for real, like, uh, thank you to those who have served, to those who uh, are serving active right now. Obviously, we're remembering those who have fallen, but there's not really a, a, a better picture, I would argue, than to lay your life down for somebody that you don't even know, which a lot of our soldiers have done, uh, and even people that don't really appreciate that sacrifice. And that's actually very, very Christ-like in and of itself, you know. And so um, thank you to all of you who have served and risked your life, and um, I will never forget Memorial Day again, all right? So uh, I was really tempted to do a sermon on uh, relationships and singleness today, uh, but we're actually going to cover that in community groups this week. So if you're in a group that's solely what we're going to be focused on is chapter 24 uh, of Genesis, today we're going to cover chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go there. Uh, Genesis 23 will be there the whole day. We're not going to move from that. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second, third chair somewhere around you. If you don't own a Bible, please take keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word, to be able to read it, use it during the week. And so uh, please, please, please take that with you. You can also follow along on your smartphone. If you have the Uversion app underneath the uh, tab, to, uh, click on events, type in the Well Austin, you can follow along that way. Uh, you can also take this link and put it right into your browser and you can follow along that way on your smartphone. Um, we want you to be able to see the word, to see that we're not making this up. Uh, we genuinely, truly believe that, man, these are the very words of God, that what is in here gives us life. And so we want to submit to this, understand this. And so we want your eyes on the word um, as well throughout the service. So um, last week, we left off with the pinnacle in some ways of Abraham's story, right? The sacrifice of Isaac and, and all of the mystery and kind of craziness that happens there. And this is the, uh, the Luke, I am your father scene, right? Even though I know we misquote that, it's no, I am your father text technically, right? But uh, that's, this is the immaculate reception. This is the game, the catch, right? The, the moon landing. Like this is the, the pinnacle of Abraham. And because of that, uh, like many of those things that I just named, like we kind of forget what comes after this. But we're actually still in the story of Abraham. This is the last week of it. But uh, because of what is happening in chapter 22, that tends to kind of overshadow sometimes what's happening in chapter 23 and 24. And it really is a beautiful, beautiful ending to Abraham's life. And so that's what we're going to cover today. Genesis chapter 23. uh, And we're going to go ahead and pick it right off in verse 1. It says, Sarah lived... 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 
So a few things that will help us set pace here for the rest of the story today. Sarah, Abraham's wife, she dies, obviously, as the text says. And you would think that the rest of the story in chapter 23 would be uh, us mourning over Sarah's death or maybe like an ode to Sarah's life. Like, here's all the things that Sarah did. Here, here are the great things. However, she doesn't really get mentioned specifically again until all the way down in verse 19. And there are only 20 verses of this chapter. And even there in verse 19, she's to some extent mentioned in passing like she is throughout the story. We'll see the word her or you're dead, but there's not really much to say about her life in a lot of ways. Now, it's clear that Abraham loves Sarah. He's weeping for her. He's mourning for her, Texas. And it's actually clear that uh, Sarah is a very, very, very important figure in the scriptures. In fact, throughout all of the scriptures, the only woman whose lifespan is given you just read about is Sarah, right? So the scriptures actually hold her up as, as really high, really important too. It doesn't tend to give a lot of people's lifespans. There's only a, a few men that it does as well, but, but here's the one instance. And so scripture kind of values her as important. Look at who she is. Like Abraham clearly loves her in a lot of ways. And yet throughout this whole story, we don't really get much about her life. And so we have to ask, why is this, okay? And part of it is that uh, what we're seeing is the promise of God unfolding. The scriptures is a story about God trying to redeem man. It's not a story about man. You tracking with that? And so in that extent, it's not going to focus on this individual's life as much as what God is doing around this individual's life to try to reach out to the nation as a whole. In, in other words, like, like when we read the Bible, we can often make the Bible about us rather than about God. That's a temptation of ours a lot of times is that all of a sudden we look at how it impacts us, how it affects us, rather than realizing it's trying to give us this grand narrative of God's great affection for us and him trying to woo us into relationship with him. So it is about us in that extent, the, the, the impact, the, 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 the majesty of God's love, but it's really a story about God in a lot of ways and how he's accomplishing that. And so the hint at what the passage is about is actually found there in verse 2. This verse mentions the burial place in the original language, Kiriath Arba. It mentions it in Hebrew, Hebron. And then once again, it mentions the region that it's in, in Canaan. Now, whenever you see repetition in the Bible, it's supposed to kind of draw your attention a little bit and say, hey, what's, what's going on here? Like, like, what's the importance? What's the significance that it would give the name and then, and then give the name again and, and then give the name again? And then even in uh, verse 19, where Sarah kind of does come back on the picture, it once again mentions the name over and over and over again. So what's the focus of the story? Well, it's on the land, Okay. And you may ask, well, why is that important? Well, if you've been with us at all, even just one or two weeks during the Abraham series, you know that back in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham. He promised that he would be a blessing to many nations and all those who bless him would be blessed. He promised that he would have offspring and that through his offspring would eventually come the Messiah, right? And he also promised that he was going to have this land. Now, the land is important because that's how uh, Israel becomes a nation and through that comes the Messiah. 
Messiah. And so it's important in God's grand scheme, the grand narrative, and even the land in Hebrews, we know that really to some extent we can replace that or understand that analogy uh, for heaven, right? Like, like Abraham desired a greater land whose builder and founder was God, Hebrews tells us. And so we see there's an importance of the land. It's supposed to make us long for a land too. It's supposed to make us long for a home for heaven. And so God promises Abraham this. However, a sudden crisis of faith comes up. His wife is dead and there's no place to bury her. Right now, now where you're buried, even today we know, is a really, really significant, it's an important thing. That's why we think about Memorial Day. We think about who's buried in the cemetery over here, the, the Texas State Cemetery on 11th, right? Like, like we bury important people that we got. We want to remember them. This is significant as to where they are. And so the same is true, and maybe even that much more in this culture is significant. And, and there's nowhere to bury her because Abraham doesn't have a home. He's a sojourner. He's an alien in some way. So... What is Abraham going to do? Pick it back up in verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So Abraham here is trying to purchase the land to some extent. Ignore the kind of the dead. All right, that's just the way they talked. It wasn't like inconsiderate, right? But he's just saying, look, I, I want to bury my wife, right? He clearly loves her. He's weeping for her, crying for her, right? Now, now I want to bury her. I want to honor her in that way. And so uh, you even in this see his affection for his wife here. But something very important is actually happening. Abraham, in a lot of ways, is actually beginning to act upon the promises of God. God promised a land, and Abraham is now trying to act upon this. Up until this point, Abraham only had one son, and he just got asked the last chapter to kill that son, right? He has no land, and to some extent, he's been more of a curse to the nations than a blessing to the nations. Every time he goes into a foreign land, he, he ends up leaving that king with plagues because he doesn't know how to tell the truth. Right? And so in a lot of ways, Abraham has not been fulfilling the promises of God, but coming off the cusp of one of his greatest acts of faith, we see him now beginning to try to act upon the promises of God. Even though he currently has nothing, he does have faith in what God has told him. He's told him that he would have a land. And so Abraham is beginning to move on this. He's trying to gain some land. He knows that, that his life is coming to a close, his, his wife's life just finished, and, and he wants to have something, some sort of a surety before his life goes on that the promise of God will be fulfilled. Abraham is acting out in faith once again. We just saw this tremendous act of faith last week, and, and it may not seem as extreme as killing his kid here. Let's be real. It's not as extreme, right? But it is still a big thing, and Abraham's trying to respond to that. This is a, a beautiful thing that Abraham is believing in the promises of God. However, unlike other times that Abraham trusted God, do you know who's absent from this story? It's God. See, every time that Abraham trusts God, God is also present in the story. He calls Abraham out in Genesis 12. He comes to him again in the covenant in Genesis 15. Jesus himself appears in Genesis 17 and, and gives him a promise once again. We see him interacting with Christ himself for Sodom and Gomorrah, and then God calls him to sacrifice his kid. However, in all the other instances, God has been silent. And where God has been silent, Abraham has tried to maneuver or fabricate the promises of God off of his own wit, off of his own intellect, and it usually ends in utter misery. Every time God is silent, Abraham tries to act, but he acts deceitfully, 
He lies, he maneuvers, he doesn't really, really trust the promises of God. And because of that, it ends in misery. However, here, God is silent, but all of a sudden, something different is happening. Abraham's being faithful. He, he's trying to act on the promises of God. He's not trying to maneuver around it or, or deceive anyone. He's just walking right into it. We actually see a mature faith of Abraham. We see his faith maturing, right? And I think that really we can ask ourselves to some extent, as Abraham did, like, do we need uh, the fire from the sky, God's voice? Do we need to feel his presence in worship? And if we don't, then we can't respond to God at all. Like, like do we have to see God move in, in crazy, miraculous ways? Or can we just begin to trust on what we know about him already? Are we needing him to speak to us, or can we rest upon the former promises of God and act in faith? Are you tracking with that? Like, like Abraham didn't even need God to really audibly speak to him here. God already did a lot of times, and now he's believing in that word, and he's walking in light of that. We see his mature faith in some ways. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Here's one of the awesome things. Abraham places himself on the lowest social ladder. He says, I'm an alien, a stranger. I have no rights amongst you, is what he says. But the Hittites actually place him on the highest of social ladders. You are a prince of God among us. One of the things that we see that's possibly happening is Abraham is beginning to be a blessing to the nations, right? Like like Abraham's beginning to actually have an impact in such a way where these Hittite men who who don't know, don't understand God, they respect Abraham's faith so much that that he's kind of being a blessing to them. And so rather than trying to move him out the land like the Egyptians did over and over again, they're actually trying to keep him in the land. Like, yeah, you come, you stay amongst me. Abraham's fulfilling what God has called him to. However, there's also something kind of subtle happening here that we don't fully see. It looks like they're being super polite, and maybe to some extent they are. Maybe they truly do believe that. However, in verse 4, Abraham wanted to buy property, but here they offer him someone else's tomb. Right? Do you see that there? So what's happening? Well, the Hittites are fine with allowing Abraham to bury his dead, that, that, they're fine with that. They actually want to bless him. They want to honor him in that sense. Yes, you can do that in anybody's tomb, right? Like you're such a blessing to us. We, anywhere you go, you can have, but they're not saying you can have that tomb. You can purchase that tomb. You can buy that tomb. Abraham wants to buy a burial land, and they're just trying to offer him a burial land. And so to some extent, Abraham's faith meets a second tri- trial here. He needs land. He's getting old. His wife is now gone. And so what does he do? Because they're offering him, but they're not trying to make a transaction with him. Now, we've been with Abraham for a while, once again. And as we just said, every time that Abraham is in a crisis of faith, he kind of pivots a little bit and he ends up doing something silly, right? He ends up kind of ruining his life, throwing it away. However, here, that's not what we see happening. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. They just called him a prince, but here he is showing honor, respect, bowing to them. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is in, at the end of his field. 
For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Here he is again. He's trying to buy the land, right? Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, and in the presence of the Hittites, of all who went in and out of the gate of the city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, I give you the cave that is in it, in the sight of my sons, of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I might bury my dead there. He keeps trying to buy the land, they keep trying to offer the land for free. However, if they offer the land for free, there's no uh, legal transaction. And so when Abraham's sons are in the picture, we don't know who owns it. There's irony in this story because in the next chapter, or chapter 25, I should say, Isaac is arguing with a foreign people because at one point they gave some wells over to Abraham. You may not remember that, right? But in chapter 18, they, they gave Abraham these wells. And now Isaac, his son, is there and they're like, these are our wells, bruh. Right? And there's no legal transaction. There was no paperwork. There was no buying. Abraham received it. And now they're like, no, these are ours. And so Abraham understands that there has to be some sort of transaction. So whether they're trying to be polite or kind of like, we don't want to give this dude land, so let's just act like we're being polite. Whatever's happening there, Abraham knows the significance that he has to get this land somehow. Right? We see him believing in the promises of God so much that he keeps trying to purchase the land. And now, Abraham is forcefully walking in the promises of God. He's not just allowing it to happen, right? You tracking with this? He's like forcefully walking in. He's purposeful. He's really trying to be obedient to the will of God. Man, Abraham, good job, man. Right? Like if we've been with them long enough, we are used to kind of, yeah, disappointment. Oh, there we go. Oh, disappointment, right? But, but not here. He passed this great test of faith, and now he's doing it again. So God's going to bless this, Right? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 14. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out uh, for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. You see this name Ephron over and over and over and over again. Why? Because the text wants you to see this is the guy who owned it, and now Abraham purchased it from him in case anybody ever asks any questions, like this is what's happening. What you're seeing here is a legal transaction, which usually they're kind of boring, right? Like nobody wants to watch somebody else buy a home. That just seems boring, just signing 500 pieces of paperwork, right? And that's kind of what's happening here, but we see some astounding things. Abraham agrees to pay the sum, the, the 400 shekels of silver, which may seem like an awesome thing. Like, man, here we go. Abraham's fulfilling it. They, they finally allow him to buy it. But that land cost approximately $244,000 in today's currency. Now, does anyone think that a graveyard in the middle of undeveloped Canaan is worth $244,000? If so, I have a place in Detroit that I would love for you to look at, okay? <laughs> right? So for comparison, David bought the land that the temple was on. Like this is a really important piece of land. David bought that for $30,500. One-eighth of what Abraham bought the burial land for, okay? What is happening here? Well, Abraham is getting ripped off. The Hittite 
is probably kind of using Abraham's sorrow, his misery. My man's wife just died, right? And so he's using this to kind of jack up the price in a really uh, unfair way, okay? And, and, and he's trying to, to make a profit off of Abraham. He's like 93% of mechanics in this world, right? If you're a mechanic, you may fall in that 7%. And if you do, tell me, because I always get ripped off, right? Like, like he's trying to make a profit because he knows, man, Abraham needs this. He, he's not willing to, 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 to give this up, so let me just see how much I can make off of him. And he makes an absurd amount of money, and then Abraham is willing to pay the full price. He gets ripped off so that he can begin to fulfill the promises of God. He gets ripped off so that he can begin to fulfill the promises of God. He's willing to be cheated that the will of God may begin to accomplish. This is astounding, friends, because now not only has Abraham's faith become so solid that he's trying to forcefully move into the will of God, he's literally willing to be cheated. He's willing to be ripped off so that the promises of God will come to fruition. This is an act of faith, friends. This is a, an astounding point in Abraham's life. Maybe not as drastic as offering up his son, but man, this is hard, right? Like if I came to you in a moment of misery and, 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 and fear and frustration, and I was like, well, I'm, I mean, I'll counsel you, but, you know, it'll only cost like $633,000, right? Like you'd be like, you are not a good friend, pastor, or whatever, right? And, and here we go, Abraham's being ripped off, but he sees the large nature of the picture, he's willing to do that. So he finally gets to bury Sarah. He buys the land, he buries her. She's resting in the lamb. What does this tell us? What does the story tell us? Well, Abraham's willing to act out, as we just said, even through pain, to fulfill the promises of God. Not only is he willing to be ripped off, but, I mean, listen, his wife just died. <laughs> The woman by whom the promise of God was fulfilled just died. Like, like, this isn't just any normal relationship. Like, God himself, Jesus incarnate, came down and spoke to them. They have been through ups and downs. He loves his bride. We see that because in a very male-dominated culture, for the man to weep and to mourn and to lay down and to cry and to bow down over and over is this act of really kind of uh, 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 like lowness, submission. It, it makes not much of Abraham, but Abraham's willing to do that because of how much he has affection for his wife. So even by being ripped off, he acts in faith, and even through pain, He's acting in faith. He knows that God is faithful. And so he's moving upon the promise of God. And he gets the joy of seeing the plan of God begin to get uh, uh, fulfilled and really orchestrated in his lifetime. For most of us, if things aren't going exactly as planned, then we tend to think that God is out of control. <laughs> right? Or maybe there's something wrong with us. Maybe some of us bend to that, like there's something wrong with us, or, or, or God doesn't know what he's doing, he's failing. But the scripture assures us over and over and over again, God is faithful. God is faithful, friends. He's faithful. He knows what he's doing. We uh, presuppose, we presume that God should act in a certain way, and when he doesn't act in that way, we tend to get mad at God rather than mad at our silly presuppositions. You tracking with that? We pre-assume that God should act in a certain way. Here's how God should act. He doesn't act in this way, and then we get mad at God as if that's how he promised he was going to act in the first place. 
He never promises that, but that tends to be our problem. So when we don't see God moving in a certain way, we think that he's not faithful. No, the scripture assures us that God is always faithful. It's just not always how we expect it. Because see, if Abraham and Sarah had had Isaac when they were uh, 70 and 60, man, that would still be a great promise, but that's where it would end. But when they have him when they're 100 and they're 90, and then he has to offer a son and all these things come into picture, then we see that God is faithful. We see that he can keep his promises. He will keep it. It assures our faith. And sometimes God is using your life to assure other people about how faithful God is. Don't you want that? Right? Don't you want your life to be a demonstration to others about the faithfulness, the beauty, the majesty of God? And this is what's happening in Abraham's life. God promised that land. Abraham knew this, so he responds to that. And it may not be what he thought, because I'll tell you what, if I'm 75 and God calls me and says, you're going to have a land, and then I get blessings from Egypt twice, right, and I have all this money, and I have all, I'm like, man, I'm about to be rolling in it, all right? I don't expect to own, when I'm dying, a piece of burial property. But that's what happened here. But Abraham knew that God was faithful because he proved himself over and over and over again. So Abraham was fine with even just this little bit because he knew that God would fulfill his promise. He knew that all it took was a mustard seed and God could make a forest out of it. And so Abraham then believes in that in some way. Right, so this is the importance of the series. This is uh, Abraham's faith being stretched over and over and over again. And we see the importance of this all the way throughout it. However, the only way that we're ever able to personally uh, overcome any sort of trial, overcome any sort of frustration, overcome any sort of a barrier in our life is if we've seen God act prior and then we believe in that promise of God. That's the only way we're going to be able to sustain. Y'all hear that? If we have realized what God's done in the past, we believe that, then when trial, frustration, whatever it may be comes in the future, we're able to respond to that. We know how good he is. We know that he's worthy to be praised. This is why, friends, listen to me, it's important to pursue God before your trial comes. It's important to cling fast to God before any of the frustration or misery or pain or whatever it may be comes because if you don't do it, then it's going to be really, really hard to do it in the middle of trial, right? It doesn't even have to be trial either. It could just be walking in the will of God in general. Like this week in, uh, after our community group, we were talking some, and I was talking with Huli. She doesn't know I'm going to give this analogy, but it's a good analogy, so... By the way, if you ever tell me anything, I can use it on stage as long as it's good, <laughs> all right? And so we're talking some, and she said, you know, she feels like what the will of God is in her life is to disciple women. And because uh, my wife got to help lead her to faith and disciple her early on, like, we saw that almost immediately. Like, she's three months in discipling people who have been, like, in the faith for seven years, all right? And she's really growing and thriving, but she was a manager at Wells Fargo. And because of that, her life was chaotic, and so she took a step back to have a lesser role so that she can disciple women more. But with that step back was a loss of salary, which is what most people say is the most important thing, right? Then she still felt like this isn't enough. I need to disciple more women. This is what God's calling me to. So she moved from Wells Fargo to a summer camp. Which one do you think she made more money in? 
all right? It was not the summer camp, in case you're asking. But that's where she was able to disciple more women. And then even within that, it was like, man, God's still calling me to do more. So she went from the summer camp to being a resident here on staff at the well, and she for sure doesn't make a lot of money here, right? I mean, she raised her own support. We're not even paying her right now, okay? Like, and so we see her making these sacrifices, but it's to respond to the will of God. And if your focus is off, if, if you're not used to seeing God move, then you can't make those types of sacrifices, but I know because she's a good friend of ours that she's far more joyful today than she was when she was making a lot of money at Wells Fargo as a manager. She's far more satisfied. There's, there's so much more of the presence of God in her life. It exudes out of her in so many ways. And that's what we have to understand, friends, that if we don't know God, then when he starts asking us to do things like that, hey, take a step back. And we see it, right? She wasn't a manager and then all of a sudden on staff. Like God slowly but surely worked her, stretching her faith, allowing her to realize, man, listen, you don't need this. I'm going to take care of you. I know that a great fear is she's single, right? So it's like I, I got I to provide for myself, but yet she trusts at the same time that God's going to provide for her. This is a real-life example of what Abraham's doing too. He's trusting because he's wanting to walk in the will of God. And so you have to believe this. And so what is he calling you to, friends? What, what is the will of God in your life? Because for some of you, it's to give up that cush salary to go be a missionary overseas or something. Right? For, for some of you, it's to make a sacrifice and, and spend $100,000 more to be in the city to reach the city, right? Rather than moving out of the city. I mean, it's hard to reach the city, but it's needed, because Christians don't tend to move in, we tend to move out statistically. Tim Keller just wrote a great, great article on the benefits of that just this week. Or maybe a sacrificing by when you do move out, staying connected or thinking about church planting still. Or, or maybe it's just to be wronged at work. And maybe it's to turn the other cheek even when you are being mistreated or, 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 or lied about or whatever it may be. Maybe it's to share the gospel knowing that it could get you in trouble or kind of lose some rungs on that social ladder. Right? Like, like I don't know what it may be for you. It could be a 50,000 different things. Right? But what is the will of God for your life? And how can you walk in it? And if you don't know God before all this starts happening, it's really, really hard to find God in the middle of all of that stuff. You have to cling to God beforehand. There are 100 situations. It could be a test. It could be a trial. It could be a test of man even like it was here with the Hittites. They were just ripping them off. That wasn't God. That was just man. But he knew God so well that he was willing to walk through that. And so we have to run over this over and over in our head. One theme that runs throughout the whole Abraham story, okay, is that Abraham's former faith helped him overcome his current obstacles, right? Abraham's former faith helped him overcome his current obstacles in so many different ways. Because he trusted God before the obstacle came, then when it did come up, he was able to get through that, and a lot of times with flying colors, but it was because of his former faith. Y'all tracking with that? So it's important for us to, to trust God before the trial comes up, right? I mean, think about it like this. Like, wouldn't you love to be stress-free, worry-free, have no anxiety, have no fear, have no concern, have no anxious toil or, or undue pressure. Like, like, wouldn't you love that? I mean, the scripture tells us that the way that we do that is being in the center of the will of God, right? I mean, look, Abraham was through something that should have gave him a whole lot of toil and trial and anxiousness, and he just does it. 
right? I mean, it's not like easy. I'm not saying, wouldn't you love to have an easy life? No, following Christ actually promises to be hard at times. But like, wouldn't you love to even through the tears, through the trials, through the mourning, through death, through whatever it may be, be able to cling fast to something that's stronger than yourself? Because whenever I try to cling fast to myself, man, I blow around like the waves of the ocean. But when I cling fast to the rock, right, like, man, I'm able to stay steadfast, secure in the midst of that. We have to trust God, though. I know literally all the time, like, one of my things that makes me blow like the winds and the waves is uh, 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 the church itself. Like, like what's going to happen? Like, we need this. Here's what God's doing. Oh, and I, I stay awake and I, I get anxious because I, I want the church to thrive and people to love Jesus and grow. Man, friends, doesn't the scripture tell me already that Christ loves the church far more than I can ever dream or imagine? And even if I was the perfect pastor, Christ would love the church 3,000 million times more than that, Right? Like, like the scripture commands that he died for the bride. I did not do that. He did. He loves the bride. And if I know God, I can rest in that. Even when trial comes, I can rest in that. But if I don't know God and I place a burden on myself, then I have to become my own savior. And we suck at that. <laughs> right? We're not that great at being our own savior. So like Abraham, we have to learn to trust in God. We have to trust in God today for what will come up into the future. Literally, just a couple, uh, last week, I was thinking, so our anniversary was a couple of weeks ago. It's hot in here, by the way, isn't it? I'm like sweat, I need like a towel, all right? Uh, it was our anniversary, and uh, so we're sitting down, and I, there was two options. We were at a semi-nice restaurant, and there were, there were two options there, and it was uh, a burger or salmon, right? And so you know what my toil and, and, and where, where I was kind of going back and forth, like the winds and the waves of the sea, right? Like, like a burger is just straight up better. But a salmon is better for you, and it makes you feel good. And I, I knew that, right? And so my wife was like, oh, I'm going to get the salmon. I was like, ah, that's what I should get. But a burger and fries sounds great. So I got a burger and fries. Amen. <laughs> How come the only time I get amens when I say stuff like that? <laughs> and so I'm eating this burger, and it is like 17 times more food than I actually need. And my wife's like, this salmon's so good. It's the perfect amount. It's satisfying me to perfection, right? And afterwards, I feel sick, and I feel miserable, and I knew that was going to happen. Like, before I went into it, I knew it was going to happen. I knew I was given this analogy, by the way. And so Friday, I had the choice between barbecue and a salad, and I chose the salad. <laughs> And then Friday night, I had Torchy's queso, so that kind of misbalanced that, right? But I, I, I can see the truth beforehand, right? Like, like, I know the truth beforehand, but I decide not to act on what I know to be true, and then I always get frustrated on the back end. And that happens with something silly like food, but come on now, isn't that a good analogy for what God's doing in our life? Don't you tend to know the promises, the will of God, but it's so easy to choose our own path to not cling to God, and then it always frustrates us at the end. It always annoys us. We, we hate where we are. We have to trust the promises of God before we walk into them. We have to know what's best. It's not like this is the first time I ever had to choose burger or salmon, right? And it's not like there haven't been times where I've chosen the salmon and realized, wow, that was a lot better in some ways. And this is like us with God, too. He puts us through things, and we have to choose him over and over and over again. You need to choose to know what happens beforehand to lean into God. You tracking with that? 
Okay, so how do you do this? Okay, there are five really quick ways. We're going to zoom through them because we've done a sermon series on all five of these, and we will do sermon series in the future on all five of these. So I'm just going to zoom through them real quick. How do you learn to, to cling to God before a trial comes? Okay, first one is to be active in the word. Notice the word active in the word, right? Like not just like kind of read it or hear it on Sunday and that's it. You have to be active in the word. These are the words of God. What made Abraham get through his promises? It was that he was active in the word. You say how? Because God kept speaking to him and he was leaning on to those words, those promises. You will have a land. Okay, well then I'm willing to be cheated so that I can get this land. God, or Abraham was believing in God's word. The, what we see is scripture now. And listen, we have far more promises than Abraham had. We have far more uh, examples of God's uh, provision and his excellencies and his beauties. We have the cross of Christ to look at. Abraham didn't have any of that. But he was active in the word of God. He believed in it in some ways. John Piper says this. We can know God's will and maintain trust in his help if we are familiar with the trajectories of his word. The trajectory of a rocket is the path it will follow on the basis of its shape and speed and weight and direction. You can know ahead of time where it is going if you understand its trajectory. That's the way it is with God's word. The Bible does not give us a detailed description of God's will for our lives. But if we listen carefully and study its shape and speed and weight and direction, we will see trajectories that give us guidance and strength and faith. Second, we must be active in prayer. Prayer allows us to trust in God through his different circumstances. Just this week, I was meeting with a, guy, a group of guys that I was discipling, and uh, Eric Leonard uh, was talking, and he was saying how he was looking through his prayer journal, and about four or five years ago, he was, uh, felt really convicted by God to begin to pray for his future wife. And I remember that because I was discipling him then, too. We're like, that's great. Let's pray for your wife. He was a single guy at the time. And so we're praying, praying, praying for his wife. Well, those of you who know, Eric is now married to Sandra. And about four or five years ago is right when Sandra started going back to church. And then she gave her life to the Lord. And then she started growing in the Lord. And Eric didn't even know her at the time. And so as he realized that God answers prayers, what do you think that did for him today? He's able to cling to God more, Right? Like, like, as we see that God is faithful, that he's active, that he knows what he's doing, then, then it makes us want to cling to him through ever what trial may come. Like, Eric wanted to get married. <laughs> all right? Now all the single people are like, I'm praying for my husband and wife right now. All right? <laughs> it's not the point of this, right? But God does listen to us, and he wants us to pray and even leads us at times of what to pray for. We have to be active in prayer as well. Third is fellowship. This is why we stress community groups and church and discipleship so much. Literally, just this week, I was wrestling with something in my head, and I was wrestling with it, and it was kind of my, my own sinful heart, and like, I knew the truth of Scripture. Like, I, I was telling myself Bible verses, but for some reason it wasn't enough, so I went outside and, and walked around my block, and I started praying, and, and I still couldn't get my head around it, and so then I called Bob Christensen, my mentor, who's known me for many, many years, and he literally told me truth that I was telling myself, but for some reason, hearing it made it become real for me. You know, faith comes by hearing, right? And I heard what he said, and I believed in some ways. And it helped me come through this, and I was able to, to process a lot better. But this came through a sense of fellowship through many years. This is why it's important to be with other men and women who will encourage us in our faith, because nobody lies to you as much as you lie to you. 
right? You are your worst enemy and biggest barrier to truly believing in God because you just lie to yourself over and over again. We need people to speak truth into our lives. We need each other. This is why it's important. Don't skip the regular meetings, Hebrews tells us. Find ways to be active in group and discipleship in church so that people can speak truth to you. Fourth is service. When we serve others, as Abraham very clearly did, then we tend to get out of ourselves and realize that there are other people in this world that need help. What really it does is it removes the focus off of ourselves and places the focus on somebody else like Philippians demands us to do. Right? It allows us to consider others more significant than ourselves. And we realize, man, God has a bigger plan for me in some ways. One thing that I would encourage you in is that even when you come into church, instead of thinking, what can I get out of it, which sometimes you'll get some stuff. And man, praise the Lord for that. What if you came in and started thinking, what can I give into it? What can I give? Who can I bless? Literally, just this last week, I was super discouraged walking into church. I have no idea why. I don't even remember, which means I was probably just being emotional, right? <laughs> but I was discouraged, and I walked into church, and literally the first thing somebody said to me was, I just so appreciate you as our pastor. You're a great pastor. And I was no longer really that discouraged, right? Because they came in thinking, I want to serve, right? I mean, literally, they, they blessed me just with their presence. So you have the fellowship aspect. It's important that I'm here. But then they're giving to me. They're serving me. So you think about all the little things like the signs or, or the chairs or the coffee or things that we don't think are that important. But as we serve and as we make room and space, man, God is moving, right? Like, like literally over the past five weeks, each week we've had somebody place their faith in Christ in a service, and so we tend to kind of think that is, yeah, we should have paused and rejoiced at that, right? That's a good thing, right? But look, that's because people are serving, they're giving of their time, their energy. This is important. And so as you give to other people, you realize you grow in your faith in God, right? And then finally, uh, evangelism or, or sharing the gospel with others. As Abraham seemingly did with the Hittites, as he assuredly did with his own children, when you read chapter 24 in community group this week, you will see this servant who's not even named who prays to God five times. Where did he get that from? It had to be Abraham, right? Abraham believed in God. He was sharing the gospel in that sense. He was sharing about faith in God and, and other people were seeing God. Because as we share, it actually reminds us of the grace that God has given us. We see God moving in these beautiful ways. Literally, last week in the evangelism training in class, we went out and we were sharing the gospel with somebody and they were like, this is stupid, I don't believe this, I'm, I'm not a Christian, right? This is dumb, get out of my door. And I thought, you know what, I said that to somebody once, literally. I was in the mall, somebody tried to share the gospel with me and I was like, you're a lunatic, right? And I walked away and now I'm preaching the gospel. <laughs> Right? It literally reminded me of the grace of God in my life as I saw that and I was able to have confidence that God is moving. Can we be honest here for a second? One of my great fears, okay, is that 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, that most people in here who have somewhat of a zeal of a hunger for the Lord will end up just kind of fizzling out. Here's one of the truths that we see about Abraham in this whole story. He clung to God. He had faith. It got him through trials, and he finished well. There are 400 leaders mentioned in Scripture, men and women who are leaders and who love God. And out of the 400 people it mentions, only 80 of them does it say finished well. That's 20%. Do the math. That's this first four rows, and then all the rest of us 
kind of fizzle out. We may still be believers, but next week we'll look at Isaac's life. We look at his life for one week because he didn't do anything. He didn't take the faith that his daddy had. He didn't really carry this on. We'll read about uh, Jacob for, for six, seven weeks. I mean, the dude was a, a, a lunatic to some extent, and yet he kept wrestling with God, and because of that, God was able to use him. He was at least trying to understand God, but it's so easy for us to just kind of fizzle out. And it would have been really easy for Abraham, too. He already passed all the tests. He sacrificed his son. But he still is clinging fast. He's, he's holding on friends. I earnestly, like deeply, like it, there's not even a word to describe that. I want you to love Jesus, not just today, not just next week or next month. I want you to freaking love him forever. He is worthy of that. He is so worthy of our affection and our times and our energies and our efforts. But when we allow all these other things to creep in, when we don't do these things and we tend to fizzle out in our faith and we do not stand fast in the Lord, it happens all the time. Which is why most of us who are younger in the room can only name four or five people that are still in their 50s, 60s, 70s that are still chasing after Jesus. Why? Because it's so easy to fizzle out. So it's not just trial, like you lose your job, and it's not just a, a barrier. It's like just falling into the American dream or just falling into apathy or, man, maybe there's a death in the family. You just kind of fall away rather than wrestle with God like, 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 uh, like Abraham even does here. You just kind of fizzle out. Friends, we have to cling or else this is going to kill us. This life will. It's too hard. And so if we don't do these things, man, we're going to be all over the place. But Abraham is willing to even be cheated so that he can trust and stay in the will of God. He knew God so well. He knew that God would come through. And friends, here's the, the, the biggest truth behind all of this. This story takes its most pure form and its most perfect shape when we actually look to Jesus, our Savior, who Hebrews calls the greater Abraham. Because see, Abraham was literally willing to be cheated so that he can act upon the promises of God and see God's will fulfilled. But Jesus Christ was willing to be cheated too, was he not? That he may act upon the will of God, the promises of God, so that he can see the will of God fulfilled. See, just as Abraham paid a high price to act upon the will of God, Jesus paid an even higher price to act upon the will of God. Jesus paid the price of his life so that he can fulfill the will of God, mainly purchasing our souls, letting us see that he loves us, bridging the gap that if we believe in him, we can have a relationship with him. And just as uh, Abraham was cheated by the Hittites who called him a prince of God and was close to him, so Jesus was cheated by his own disciple, Judas, who betrayed him with a kiss. Instead of a high price, he got paid the price of a crippled slave to be traded in. But he trusted God. He said, I could call down a legion of angels to wipe out all of this. But he didn't because he knew the will of God because he loved us enough to go to the cross. Friends, Jesus is our perfect model and example. But man, Abraham is also a great model and example for us that we have to cling to God today. Man, please, 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 today. How do you cling to God Maybe you think, oh, my life is all messed up. and That's okay, start, start. Jacob's life was all messed up, right? Abraham was old when he started coming in. He was 70 when he finally started clinging to God. It's not too late. But, man, we got to cling to God. We have to cling to him. Man, I love you guys, friends. Listen, man, Jesus, he's so much better. He's so much better. 
And I pray that today you'd be able to have faith in him so that whatever happens, you can cling fast to his promises. What is he calling you to sacrifice? How is he calling you to walk in his will? Man, find that out and do these things that we may see Christ. And the more we look to the gospel, the more we'll understand that and we'll fall in love with our Savior and he'll keep us till the end. He'll keep us to the end. I love you guys. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I feel my heart, God, it is prone to wander as we often sing in the hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. I love you, Jesus. I love you, but I'm so prone to leave. God, if we're honest, that's us. Because I'd rather check my Facebook status than be active in the word. I'd rather be worried and concerned rather than lifting my prayers up to you. I'd rather be lazy rather than get involved in fellowship. I would rather not share the gospel because it's awkward at times. And I don't want to be put into that. I don't want to serve others. I want them to serve me. Man, these things are hard, but it helps me trust in you. Please, God, help us to trust in you. Please, 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 please. Spirit, even right now, begin to create a steadfastness, an assuredness, Help us to cling to our faith, Christ. And God, I pray for those who are even wrestling with you and who you are, that right now they would see you are worthy. Look at who you are, what you've done to purchase us. Far more than purchasing a land, you purchased our souls, Jesus. Pray we would trust in you, all of us, Christ. Help us to trust in you, Jesus. Praise in your very beautiful name. Amen. At four different places in the